Welcome to What Would Jane Do, a podcast exploring women's work in cities and urban design. With us today is Wafa Woodme. She's an urban planner and human rights advocate from Palestine. We met during her graduate program and we are catching up with her about her work with Young Habitat and her personal research with communities from the West Bank. Hi Wafa, how are you? Hello. Hey. I'm good. How are you guys? Girl. Hi, Wafa. <laughs> James. <laughs> yes. Well, Wafa, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? So, I am, um, as you said, I am an urban planner from Palestine. I have uh, studied architectural engineering in Birzeit University, also in Palestine. And then I um, did a postgraduate degree in the University of Edinburgh and Harriet Watt in urban strategies and design. And currently I work as an urban planner with uh, UN Habitat, Palestine office as well. Oh, that's great, Rafa. Can you tell us a li little bit about, I, I think you said architectural engineering. Is that different from normal architecture uh, degree? We have In the architectural engineering, we take some courses from civil engineering and other like electrical engineering and mechanical engineering department. So uh, we don't just, supposedly, we don't just learn the architectural aspect or the spatial aspect of the building. We also um, study other engineering aspects and structures. Um, so that's why it's part of the engineering school. And then you have the architectural department. What made you want to enter the field that you're practicing in? What made you want to study what you did? Uh, yeah, well, when I finished high school, I didn't know that there's a field that's called urban planning. Uh, I only knew architecture or architectural engineering. And I was uh, looking uh, into a field that is both scientific because I was good at maths and it's it's a trick you, you, I'm not good at maths <laughs> like, I was good in school and I thought I was good in maths and I liked it uh, so I wanted to, to do something that is uh, that has the scientific aspect and that social aspect that has a, a social aspect because I was also I also liked theory and uh, this kind of stuff and philosophy. It was my dad actually who suggested that architecture is a good combination. And then when I started architecture school in the fourth year, we get to choose whether to go in architectural design or urban design. And I decided to go through urban design because I thought I liked how it dealt with the social aspect more. Um, and um, mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of building details. I like the bigger picture, the concepts, and and yeah. So I I did my concentration in urban design, and then I liked it. Yeah. I think it's funny. I don't know if every architecture student went to, through the same thing because I did study architecture because I like arts and I like math. And I'm not good at either, so it's a big realization. It sounds like, yeah. Wafa, so now you said you work at uh, UN Habitat, but where is it based? In what part of Palestine are you living right now? And where you're from? 
originally, let's talk about me first and then you and Habitat. Well, uh, originally I live in a village called Batir. It's near Bethlehem. It's a little bit to the southern, almost middle part of the, the West Bank and to the west parts of the, the West Bank. So it's uh, right on the, um, on the border of the 1948. UN Habitat is based in Ramallah, uh, which is a little bit to the north, also in the middle of the West Bank, not to the far north of the West Bank. So we are based in, um, the office is based in Ramallah, but we do um, interventions across the West Bank in Gaza. Uh, could you introduce us to the city where you're from? Well, it's a it's a small village. Uh, it's a border village, actually. It's an agricultural vi- village, uh, well known for uh, its eggplants or aubergines, and we have a festival for that every summer. <laughs> not 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 in twenty twenty though. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it. <laughs> and um, it's uh, it has uh, Roman terraces. Uh, like the the land, the agricultural land, it's it's not designed, but it's we we could say it's designed in a, in a terraces. So it's uh, terraced, you know. It's um, small gardens that are terraced one over the other on a mountain, and it has a, a Roman pool, a Roman uh, agricultural system. So it's part of uh, uh, the world heritage. It's a it's a world heritage site. What did you say? It's not designed. It's or is it just evolved? I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's 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 so ancient. I mean, it's so the the terraces are so old. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if we just to to say it's designed. I don't know. Um, um I wasn't sure if it's the right <laughs> terminology to use. Is the World Heritage status because of the the Roman terraces? Yes, the the Roman terraces oh. and the the, the Roman agricultural uh, irrigation system. Mm. Why do you say that Batir is a, a border village? So after the occupation of historical Palestine in 1948, uh, the country was divided between Israeli sovereign land and it wasn't Palestinian sovereign land. It was uh, It was divided between Jordan and Egypt. And uh, the demarcation line was set in the 1948. And the line passes through the village. So most of the built-up area is inside what is now the, the West Bank. But the agricultural lands and some of the built-up area are considered to be within the Israeli-occupied part. Do you think that... Mm-hmm fact has helped maintain the agricultural feel of the village? Well, I think it, in somehow it, the, the agricultural land of the village wasn't really affected like other places in Palestine because people will still commute and uh, reach their, their, their land. So access was not restricted because the, the line is not I mean, it's 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 on the map only. There's no definition on the line on the ground. I think you've all heard of this separation, the separation barrier, the um, uh, segregation wall that Israel built, the uh, the big cement wall across mm-hmm. the the West Bank to, to separate the two countries. Mm-hmm. 
um but in in Pal- in Batir, it was supposed to 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 define the border and pass through the village but then because it was a, a world heritage site they petitioned to the court and uh they um, i don't know is it won the case yeah i guess yeah and then mm-hmm. um the the wall was never built in Batir, so uh, the border is not marked, and people can still reach their agricultural lands, and they harvest mm. them. Uh, the interesting thing that there is, uh, it's part of uh, Al Hijaz Railway, Batir was, and now the Israeli um, occupation is using the, the railway as a as a railway <laughs> to commute between Jerusalem and um, Java, but this also didn't affect them like didn't affect the farmers like a lot. Uh, I think what affected agriculture in Batir is just the natural economic development because people were heading more towards job-based economy, not an agricultural Mm -hmm. economy. I mean, it's nice that it maintained the, like the character from, from before everything. But I guess it followed uh, like a, a normal evolution of every small village. Would you say it's different living in uh, growing up in Batir and now living in Ramallah? Well, it's it's definitely different. The views are different. The landscape is different. The commuting is different. I mean, we used to be uh, to walk much more in in Batir, although it's it's hilly and it's harder to to walk in Batir. But that was the norm that you walk usually in rural areas. Yeah. And people knew each other really well. It it could be good, but it also couldn't. Um, because people know each other so much. They know all the details. Um, <laughs> they know everybody and what he's doing, what he's up to. Uh, the small city but, issue that exists yeah. everywhere, I hear. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but, um, I still visit like every weekend. So it, it's nice. It gives me a nice connection to nature when I go back and then going back to, to the big city of Ramallah. What would you say is your favorite space in Batir? Well, uh, my favorite space is uh, actually it's, it's, a, it's a rock in the mountain. Uh, that's part of my grandparents' land. It's, it's almost opposite to the built-up area of, of the village. So th- there's a mountain and there's a valley and then there's another mountain. So it's on the other mountain, opposite to the to the to the village. So you can see almost the whole village. You can see the train station, uh, the schools. I like it because uh, I have a lot of good good memories growing up there, and um, it was like my escape from the village, even if it's not that mm-hmm. urbanized. But uh, that's. Uh, my favorite space personally i think professionally as an urban planner my favorite space is um so there is a a water spring in in the village which used to be the center of of the old town of batir it was built close to the to the to this spring and then it uh, expanded uphill i like this yard because it's near the school and so it's it's like a common space in in the village. Uh, sometimes they they do uh, Eid celebration there. Uh, it's a nice collective 
a place where kids can just go and play. Uh, we used to use it as part of the school because it's in front of of um, what used to be a girls' school. Now it's a it's a boys' school. So I studied in that school, and we used to to use this yard as a as a space where we walk and do some activities as well. It's near the spring, so there's a lot of inter social interactions that happen around the spring. So I think it was part of the the communal social life of of the village until today, and yeah, that, that's why I. I like it because it's it's such an organic space that's no no one is administering, but it gives this collective identity to the to the village. Can you notice other people liking it as well? Is that something that like is a common favorite space of everyone? Well, I think that me and the other girls who studied in the school would have this uh, would value this this space, and I think also um, other. I'm not sure if it's the favorite space for a lot of people in the village because probably people would uh, like the Roman pool better, perhaps. <laughs> you know, when you study things and then you're exposed to theories and then you start to to think back and observe what's been going on in your like day-to-day -day life in the village and then you start to come up with spaces that <laughs> you notice, probably. I think maybe this is the case, but I think that it, it, it's... it's um, a lot of people use the space, whether they realize it's their favorite or not. Probably, yeah, I, I would say it's a nice. I feel like it's so interesting that, from an emotional point of view, it's this space that is connected to nature. But but when you think more, like from your analytical point of view, like from having studied and knowing about architecture and urban design, you pick another place. So. Yeah, and studying opens your eyes to new things, and you yeah. see things differently. Well, could you tell us more about what you're currently doing? Currently, I'm working as an urban planner with UN Habitat. Um, I'm part of a joint program between four UN agencies that aims to eliminating violence against women and girls. In UN Habitat, we look at eliminating violence against women and girls in public spaces to design safe and inclusive uh, public spaces. Uh, that are uh, comfortable and inviting for all groups of the community, especially women and uh, and girls. So we look at urban design as a tool to prevent violence. We're working in uh, five Palestinian cities in the West Bank and one in uh, Gaza Strip. Uh, so we're doing uh, safety audits to assist the safety, inclusivity and uh, comfortability of um, public spaces in those urban centers. And we are also working on developing design methodologies and regenerating uh, physical, uh, like doing physical interventions in selected public spaces based on the results of or the findings of the survey and the design methodology. We are also uh, partnering with uh, universities to include the concepts of safety and inclusivity as for women, especially for women, as part of the curriculum. Um, and finally, we are aiming to come up with, uh, with a national policy for designing public spaces for women. That's that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
so impressive. Um, so great. So how long have you been working on this project? So I, I joined the team in July last year. So it's been a, a year and a few months now. Have you seen any improvements in the communities that you're working on? Or is it too early to sell yet? I think it's too early to say. And I think the, the most difficult part is to have people open up and speak about violence in the in public spaces because there is mm -hmm. um, somehow a stigma re related to being a victim of violence. Yeah. Uh, and also there is uh, an, th it's, there's no clear definitions of violence in public spaces because usually people would think of Uh, being beaten in a public space as a form of, of violence. But it's not just that. It's not being able to, to be in a public space is violating your right to the city. And that is a form of violence. So if you're a mom with a, a stroller or something and you can't enter a garden because it has uh, stairs or you can't walk freely um, on a sidewalk so you stay at home, That is a form of, of, of violence. Um, Not only about the feeling so, of security, but also about how accessible the space is. Yeah, exactly. And the feeling of security based on the, the, the livability of the public space or the, like how varied the activities are, how varied the users of the public space we're still open up, opening up the discussion and we're still talking uh, with the community. I'm sure we've been affected by COVID, but we've done um, some community workshops in the streets where people just come and, and talk, especially women. And we've done uh, a focus group discussion only with, with women to, to know how they view public spaces and what are the issues preventing them from feeling safe in a public space or just not going or not using a certain public space. We are still starting to think about redesigning the public spaces and the design methodology. So we haven't done any physical intervention yet, but we've been doing the surveys, the assessment and trying to, to open up the, a dialogue With, with women to speak about their needs. So people were a little bit resentful when we started because like, oh, our spaces are safe. There's no high crime rates. There's no, no, no. And then you have to tell them that it's not just about crimes or stealing. It's also <clears throat> not feeling safe just because you're a woman and you might feel... Um, not safe entering uh, a dark space at night or uh, perhaps there are some guys uh, uh, sitting on a sidewalk and then you have to cross the road to the other um, sidewalk to continue your journey. So it's, it's all those little details that then people will start viewing uh, the public space differently from both genders, actually. So you would say that you have got positive responses from both sides now then? Or? Yes, I think people are more accepting the fact that uh, women use space differently than men. Um, and the results of the survey could show that because we've, we have charts of how uh, women use spaces in the day and then how they use them at night versus how men use spaces in the day and at night. 
and measuring the perception of safety between both genders. And this would open up questions um, and discussions on, okay, there is something that we need to acknowledge here. And there are needs of other groups of the community that needs to be uh, taken into consideration when uh, designing public spaces. I see. If you refer to me, like to the concept of security, I'm always thinking about relating it to other people. So if I see men in public spaces, I won't go into that public space because it will make me feel safe because I don't see other women. But you're referring to the concept of safety as more than that, right? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely one important aspect about feeling safe is having uh, different users uh, using the public space, um, uh, whether age group, whether in different age groups, different genders, different abilities, different ethnicities. Um, so this is uh, definitely one aspect. So we look both at the, the social aspects and at the physical aspects, because sometimes you wouldn't feel, you wouldn't go to a public space because you don't feel comfortable in a public space, because, for example, there is bad smells or there is um, high levels of noise in a public space. And then when people start avoiding this public space, then you would leave it to as a as an abandoned space where, for example, people who uh, use drugs can uh, use it. And then the, the, the space will be stigmatized or uh, people will be scared going into it um, afterward, after a certain period of time. Or, as you said, if it's, if it's only a, a male-dominated space, females wouldn't prefer using it. And uh, sometimes because of people's abilities, like if I'm on a wheelchair and I can't use the space, like I can't access the space and walk around the space freely, I wouldn't use it as, as well. So it's... Uh, it's both the design aspects, but also the perceptional aspects, and it, it's it's um it's different factors that play together in in enhancing the safety of the public space or uh, reducing it. Well, I know that only part of your research is done at UN Habitat, and I I think you've you have work on other uh, research like personal research. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Well, it's it's a bit early to talk about the other research, I guess, because nothing was published. Uh, but I'm interested in uh, working on uh, social mapping with communities, like drawing their mental maps and their perception uh, maps. And I'm also interested in on how people use their day to day life and how they tailor it and adapt it as a as a way or as a form of resisting physical displacement, especially in closed military zones in Palestine. Mm -hmm. Those are mainly the, the two topics that I am researching now, besides my job. What made you want to do uh, that type of research? I mean, apart from the work that you're doing. I also think that those are um, <clears throat> not, like, not researched enough topics. So I do them out of like uh, personal enjoyment i guess lately we have been hearing a lot about the right to the city but it's always this only like one meaning concept do you think that 
based on what you're saying, this right to the city could be appropriated or adapt, adapted according to circ different circumstances? Yeah, I think the right to well, I, I think that the right to the city is, um, although um, urban planners and architects and spe spatial specialists have a certain point of view to that, uh, but I think that it's it's up to the community to to claim the right to, to first decide what's their right and then uh, to claim it, and that's um, I think that's um, one um, for me one of the the true facets of the right to the city because it it could mean different things for different people based on their different. Um, academic economic and social status statuses i guess it's it's interesting to hear from different parts of the of the world you know like even though we are different contexts uh different different social political and economic conditions at the end we are all aiming to that right of this to the city right it it feels like an It's such a theoretical concept, but that everyday people kind of have a different language for. Um, in your work with, um, you know, preventing violence against women, is that something that you kind of teach them about and give language to with the right to the city? Uh, yes, exactly. Because we think that how women use public space is not just for the sake of them using public space. It's for them to be... A part of the social and economic life of the community in general. It's giving them opportunities to good uh, employments because, for example, if there's no good uh, or re reliable transportation system, uh, perhaps uh, women would be hesitant to, to go to certain or to take certain jobs in certain locations, for example. And this would limit their participation in the or integration in the community life in general uh, and their right to the city in general. So uh, we're looking at public spaces and integrating women needs in public spaces as a tool to for them to be integrated in, in, in the community and in city life in general. Uh, so we're always trying to let them think behind the, what they see and behind the phenomena and think about what Um, what consequences this could have if, for example, women can't commute easily at night, then all the, the, the cultural life that happens after sunset, then women cannot attend all, all those cultural events. And this would limit their right to, to the city and to the cultural life of, of the city. So we're not just looking at, for example, at a, a destroyed bus station or at a um a broken street light as uh, just a broken street light it's it's a, a series of of things that could eventually would limit certain groups from being um active citizens in their cities so um it, we we're trying to do that it's it's harder um uh, done than said of course but um uh, that's that's the aim of the the project what about your city is giving you hope right now what's giving me hope is is the the daily practices of the the, the communities that are not um uh, i mean not in line with any 
order and where they claim their right to the city in their own way, whether how they cross the streets, whether how they um, use the, the, the sidewalks in big cities, or how they, for example, how informal economic uh, activities take place in big cities, or in more extreme cases, how uh, people in closed military zones, uh, for example, resist the physical displacement through adjusting their daily activities. So it's it's those ordinary um, urban collective practices that the community uh, performs on a daily basis yeah. that gives me hope. Yeah. Thank you, Wafa, for joining us on this interview. It was great to catch up with you. And it's so interesting to, he to hear about what you're doing with your habitat and your personal research as well. Oh, no, thank you, ladies, for this uh, lovely chat. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for sharing, Wafa. Thank you. I always love hearing from Wafa and chatting with her because she is honestly one of the most brilliant people I know and probably one of the nicest people I think all three of us knows. You guys agree? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so great. Um, but, and it was also, I really, I just really enjoy talking to her because I feel like so much of the news that we hear out of Palestine is, is focused on the conflict with Israel. And, you forget that they're also just dealing with normal urban design issues in their cities, like every other city is as well. Um, so I think her work with the UN was just fascinating and, and hearing about how she, how they're working to address violence against women through urban design is, that was really incredible to hear. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think the, the perspective of taking on like, the word violence in the case that she did is very new to me. Because, um, I mean, it clearly means not necessarily the physical violence, but also covering everything from the accessibility and the security of people, uh, or in this particular case, women in public spaces. And I think I've never really taken on the perspective of, of calling it violence, but it, it, it truly is. I mean, these issues exist in, in cities around the world. And it's kind of at the top of the list of a lot of urban thinkers and, and designers at the moment. And I, I love the focus on women because you hear it so much that like if you design for a space for women and children, then it's going to be like a space that's accessible to everyone, um, which is which I agree with. But I, th I think it's also interesting, like what you're saying, changing reimagining the way that you're talking about violence because I think it, and you could hear that when she was talking about the hesitancy to talk about it with um with people that she's surveying and interviewing because they they think of it only in crime and like oh well we don't have crime we don't have stealing like nobody's mm. being physically harmed but what you said is also the accessibility and you know the personal security is that a space that you feel safe moving into and so if you don't then you know it can have a ripple effect on others as well Yeah, like looking at it from like, I mean, imagining myself in a public space 
and how I use a public space. And it's something that it becomes so common, like the daily life. Like if I go to a public space, if it's empty, then I'm not going in because yeah. I'm afraid. So that's a type of violence that I didn't know about. I didn't consider it a type of violence. Or if it go to if I go to a public space and it's really dark, I wouldn't go in. It doesn't feel safe. Or if I go to a public space and it's I don't see any women or children around, I wouldn't go in either because yeah. Yeah, it's like the perceived safety of that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and it can just also be down to just kind of standard infrastructure. If it's not lit up enough, or it doesn't feel like you can have an overview over the space that you are going through or using, that can also become a threat to you. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that you see a person per se. It can just be that you don't feel having control over the space you're using. Yeah, yeah. And what I really kind of find interesting as well is the whole thing of bringing it up to the public as you said caitlin like so the people she's talking to the people of the public doesn't necessarily understand they have maybe not seen as we said violence as being the term of this issue and i mean what wafa's role is it's not only to redesign but first of all which is kind of crucial is to just educate people and inform them what actually could exist instead you know, public mm-hmm. public participation, I think, is one of the the hardest work within urban design. I mean, designing is 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 also, of course, complicated, but it's more of a practical part. But making people understanding their rights and understanding how they can differently use their space. I mean, yeah, yeah, teaching them that they have a right to say what should or shouldn't be in their space, exactly, and, and that they have control over that space. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, it'll be really interesting to see what comes out because I think right now they're just in the the surveying participation phase. But I'm curious to see what what solutions they come up with. Um, so we'll have to check back in with her. Um, but and that's also so important. I think one of the other things that came up is like how how these spaces live into the future beyond you know just the next decade or so. Um, talking about her home in Batir and the influence that uh, the heritage site there has had was was really interesting as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, think of it like the heritage site did literally stop the building of a physical boundary. And I mean, borders are something that exists all over the world and kind of sometimes really interrupt the freedom of course of people uh and their spaces but here this heritage site has gone beyond that being able to have the power of just keeping it as it is like as it has been for a thousand years no exactly it's we're really respecting it and i mean with other heritage sites as well you you want them to live on forever and not that every each public space is going to be able to have that kind of um, marking. Yeah, that level of designation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but just still have that kind of respect, I think. Again, it's, it's just um, supposed to be a space for everyone, to everyone to see and understand its history and, and what it does to the people who, who have used it and will be keep using it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I guess this like brings forward the importance of urban design around the world. This, the Roman terraces that were designed two thousand years ago, is the one are the ones that had the power of not transforming the village, like not changing its use, not changing the way people inhabit it. So the question is like, how are we designing parks and urban spaces right now for it to have like this important role in the future as well? Yeah, absolutely. And how will it evolve and how will people use it beyond its current use? Like thinking far out into the future, I think helps a lot. Yeah, and, and not least that, we talk about urban design as professionals and we have been interviewing people that are in the professional world, but that doesn't mean that that's exclusive to us. It's everyone's have the right to say something about it. It is the people's uh, spaces, as we've said. And sometimes I can feel like the word urban design can be very kind of excluding, but it's absolutely not. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Thanks for listening to What Would Jane Do? Tune in next time as we continue to explore women in cities and urban design. What Would Jane Do? is hosted by me, Caitlin Foote, Kaisa Leon Lilja, and Stephanie Ajapasrana. Together, we make up Collectivo Design Group. You can find us at collectivo.com, on Instagram at Collectivo Design, and on Twitter at Collectivo DG. And that's Collectivo with a K.